All right. Bookworm Games, episode five. This is our conversation with Ben Kozlowski. Are you there, Ben? I am indeed. Yay, we got it to work. So I'm really glad that you made the time. Uh, The big, uh, the download of Anchor to get on here and try this out. Um, taking that plunge uh, and putting something on your phone. Um, back when I knew you at, at college, uh, we got to talk face to face every morning at the at the breakfast table. Yep. Um, That's yeah. Right. The uh, you know the the cliche is right. You stay up late talking to people at college and hashing out the world's problems. But in our case, it was always you know wake up in the morning early and hash out the world's problems yep. and mostly talk about video games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Hey, you know, anything that lets us get to talk is, is fine by me. So anyway, uh, Hey, so I wanted to talk to you first about your, um, your blog that you work on uh, over a, a few years and then it sort of went into, into hibernation there, but you've recently revived it. Um, it's at Watchman Zeke 33. And it's on WordPress, is that right? Yes. Um, right. I believe the blog itself is named Watch, but the handle is Watchman Zeke. Okay, okay. So can you, can you say a little bit about uh, your project there, maybe kind of where it started and then where it's taking you um, these days? Well, it has changed quite a bit. And as you said, it was very much in hibernation for, I think, about a year and a half. Um, I originally started it as just a sort of opportunity to cast my ideas into the internet um, on all sorts of subjects, some philosophy, some theology, a lot of video game discussion and pop culture references. I would frequently post about whatever I was reading or writing or thinking about at the time. And uh, I found myself sort of gravitating towards more ambitious projects, uh, working towards like long series on one I did on Derrida and another one I was planning on doing about sort of contemporary objections to biblical issues. And it got a little too heavy for me to maintain. Um, Too much research and not enough just me airing my silly thoughts. So... um, I'd left it for quite a while while my life was also in upheaval and I was looking for jobs and stuff like that. And I found sort of a new, a renewed purpose for it in the last couple of weeks where uh, now I am doing a lot of research towards hopefully a PhD program down the road, uh, mostly centered around philosophy of language and semiotics and sort of that wide interconnected web of fields that have to do with language. And as I'm reading, I'm not getting a whole lot of opportunities to bounce my ideas off of people. So it seemed like a good time to just sort of resurrect the blog as a way of focusing and allowing me to rehash the things that I'd found in my study. Yeah. So, yeah. So as you're talking about philosophy of language um, and the, the, the different fields that kind of interconnect there, one thing in particular that struck me was the phrase you used, um, the ethics of discourse. Yes. And so the, the, the phrase, right, that, that stood out to me. And I think you italicized it. Like that's the, that's the title of your, your, your project really, right? So, so can yes. you say a little bit about that in particular? 
Um, a lot of what I consider to be the ethics of discourse is just this sort of macroscopic look at the way that we use language and the way that we talk to each other and what exactly that entails on a pragmatic level, um, on an ethical level, really. Like there's that famous passage in the Bible where uh, Jesus says, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out. And there's been a great deal of effort spent on discussing all sorts of ethical subjects, but academia especially seems very reluctant to confront what it means, what responsibilities we have when we talk, when we discuss things, when we, when we create art for that matter, um, because it reeks of censorship. Um, we, we imagine that if we let the crazy philosophers and the ethicists have their way, eventually they're going to take away the ability to speak freely about certain subjects. And that has never been my plan. Um, rather, I did want to sort of examine both on the microscopic, what, how does language work? How does it persuade us? How does it enthrall us? How does it communicate basic ideas? And what are all the crazy things that it can do in a given span? But also to look at it from the perspective of um, how we use it and how we use it to change world um especially in recent memory with the with the trump election and everything that has gone on politically there's been so much about the way that reason is changing the way our relationship to reason and to truth yes. uh, our relationship to the media or the news uh, engines or indeed whether or not we're being sort of snowed by russian propaganda or whatever the case may be <laughs> like bots. Yeah, um, it, it's a crazy world we live in. And the fact of the matter is, we don't even know how to talk about these issues because we don't know how to talk about anything. Um, <laughs> we're still like very that. concerned with that. I like that you, yes, uh, you go back to sort of get, get back to basics with this stuff, because a lot of the philosophy, especially in recent years that I've sort of encountered one way or another has felt very detached and very abstract and very very yeah um in its own little world you know but yes. uh, the more that the more that it can the more that it can inform us and the more it can draw our attention to the fact that we really don't know as you say don't really know anything <laughs> don't yeah. know what we're talking about well that's that can only be towards the good i think um and that's different from censorship right when you sort yes. of stop yourself you stop yourself from saying something because you realize it's dumb and it's uh, going to lead to problems and it's not really reflective of the truth, then that's, mm -hmm. that's probably to the good, you know? So, and, yes. and that's not anybody outside of you, you know, trying to silence you. That's you you making a good judgment on, on that. And I think that's, well, that seems yeah. like a valuable project to go for. Yeah. Uh, now, um, Oh, there was, there was something in there as well that I wanted to pick up on. Okay, of course, the Bible, right? So mm -hmm. the the role the role of religious um, truths um, and and in what way the erosion of that particular kind of truth is more um, indicative or sort of preliminary to the the more widespread erosion of of all sorts of factual right what we would consider much more commonplace truths right. And, and recent times can you say a little bit because i know you've studied a lot of stuff with with respect to the Bible. i know i keep putting you on the spot here but but this is kind of the last of the preliminary preliminary mm. big big questions that i wanted to 
to get some some groundwork laid for here before we kind of have a more free flowing conversation. So let me just ask you again about yeah, what is the what is the relationship between that religious fundamental uh, maybe that's a a loaded word, but that kind of truth, right? I think versus yeah, yeah. The, the more commonplace, yeah. Yeah, there has obviously been a lot of ink spilt on the subject of the death of God and whether or not um, we can really believe in absolutes anymore. Um, and I noticed that sort of the religious mindset, like even among religious believers, is sort of eroded in many ways. Like we, we have this knee-jerk American response now to our pluralism where um, like everything that we say, we have to hedge with, but that's my opinion and you can believe whatever you want. Um, whereas for the true like died in the wool evangelical or the real religious believer, that's, that's really not an option. Um, the whole point of the Christian philosophy is that it needs to spread, that people are living in sin and damnation and that you have to evangelize, you have to communicate your message or else they're just going to go on hurting themselves and hurting everyone around them, which is such a foreign concept. Like I bring it up to my students um, in my ethics classes all the time and they just stare at me like they have no idea what I'm talking about. Like they'll frequently come back at me and say something like, but how do you, you know, how do you wrap your brain around this idea where it, this is the one truth, the only truth. And not only is it the one and only truth, but everyone else has to believe it no matter how wrong they are. And I'm just like, that was 2000 years of world history. And then some, it's only the past hundred that we've thought such crazy ideas as, well, maybe we should all believe different things. Um, as uh, kind of the, the norm now in, in most the yeah, popular smears, right? It's... And and I I try to draw that distinction between you know what does pluralism versus relativism looks like because at the end of the day relativism is untenable. Yeah. Um, oh, you, I mean, not everyone knows that it's untenable, but it remains untenable. But pluralism. That's where language comes into it um, in a really important way, right? I think that's kind of mm -hmm. the strongest argument that that I've the strongest sort of straightforward. Um, argument against relativism is that you don't get to really say much if you don't yeah. believe that like something actually true somewhere right right at the very least that relativism is itself true like for a relativist to persist they have to kind of believe that you know they're the only exception to the rule so so what about pluralism and a robust pluralism what would that sort of look like I think a robust pluralism is what we've sort of kept reaching for and every now and again lose sight of and get lost in that whole relativistic mess because pluralism is about, yes, I believe the thing that I believe. And I think that it's incredibly important than, and that everyone else should agree with me. But I recognize that in the societal sphere in the gazelle shaft, rather than the gemeinschaft, shaft, we need to be tolerant of other opinions. And beliefs but it may be my responsibility the gazelle shaft is the, sort of civil... the social sphere and the gemeinschaft the yeah private okay yeah gemeinschaft being community to gazelle shaft civil society mm. okay. um as tuni's book has it gotcha okay. but uh now so what's what's interesting to me about that uh, is the, the the role that um friendship would play right and and i think you see this mm -hmm. right at the end of of the 
original, right, Nicomachean ethics of Aristotle, he comes to this point where he's saying, you know, friendship is sort of the, the best model for what, you know, genuine truth seeking and genuine ethics really look like. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, you can't really, I guess it's also the paradox there is you, you can't be friends with everybody, right? You have only so much time, yeah. you have only so much time for one thing. And of course, people's differences and personalities are what make them on the one hand endearing on the other hand sort of maddening you know so so mm-hmm. it's like, well so how big can the how big can the community be how how big can the civil society be and still sort of work you know it's that's that's one of the big questions you know how many friends can you really have uh, yeah i mean especially in the light and i know that you've been teasing montaigne over the past few few sessions but I mean, both Montaigne and Aristotle stress, you're only going to have so many real, true, virtuous friendships in your lifetime. And you'll be lucky if you have even one. Now, so the thing um, about that, though, right? So it's like the, the Christian promise is that there is this, this being, this person who can be everyone's mm-hmm. friend. And through that person, yes. everyone, everyone can be friends or something like better than friends, maybe even, you know, everyone can actually genuinely uh love one another and have this beloved community right and that's yeah that seems to be a really extreme kind of pluralism and not at all a a, a limiting or or uh i don't know what the other word would be but not at all a a restriction exclusive yeah yeah but on the other hand it's like very hard to well it's hard to make that leap and say well i actually believe that that is the case you know and i think mm-hmm. you know i think this Whereas in the past, you know, it was the norm for people to say, I'm a Christian, this is what I believe, and sort of assume that everyone felt the same way. So it's a, we're at a kind of an interesting reversal in, in history here, I feel like, where yes. sort of it's, it's against the grain to say, I'm a Christian, and this is what I believe, and all this stuff, you know? Um, yeah, arguably, we haven't seen that, at least, you know, in Western society since before Constantine, um, <laughs> with... Christianity on the run certainly it's not as bad as it was then but and honestly like I'm as much as I've heard lots and lots of Christian preachers get up in their pulpits and complain about how our society is losing its way I'm kind of of the opinion that Christianity thrives when it is oppressed in some ways that when when it does require the Christian to do something surprising or um rebellious there's a sort of anarchism about christianity that i think is important to it at a foundational level yeah yeah no of course and so in in that spirit then um i so i can't help but see sort of archetypal symbols and allusions to great works um when i look at things that i really love you know these old video games um and specifically mm-hmm. earthbound that's the one i kind of started from because for me that's where I was first sort of immersed in a world um, in a video game. It was just like I was the right age or, or I don't know what it was exactly. I had the right friends around me to play the game with or something. Mm-hmm. But it's like, and, and I've never quite found any other game that I love that much and that really moves me as much as Earthbound does. So it made sense to start there for me. But I, I reading your blog, um, Majora's Mask was the game that you said is, is kind of your your model for a great uh, video game and I, I wanted to kind of yes. go there next because um, I know in the future perhaps you'll be making some podcasts about video games I hope um, 
In the meantime, with here, more of this resistance, it will definitely happen. But yeah. well, so in, in to get started, it's like it's a sequel, right? To um, yes, Ocarina of Time. Uh, it's in this long series, long and storied, of of Zelda, right? Um, mm. And Majora's Mask. If I understand correctly, it's built on essentially the same engine that ran Ocarina of Time. Is that? Yes. There are some differences as like, I'm not terribly knowledgeable about the mechanics of the game. Most of the art assets were carried over. Uh Um, Lot. Most of the animation work had already been done. Like all of the characters from Ocarina of Time, they reappear in Majora's Mask, although in new locations and new settings and a new relationships to one another um but i think the the engine was at least updated a bit um because uh as you may or may not remember ocarina of time ran on the n64 proper as long as you had an n64 you could play ocarina of time but to play majora's mask you needed the expansion so either either the lighting or some part of the engine was subtly tweaked in addition to of course the mechanical madness of the three-day cycle but i also think just from a pure like there was an update in the graphics yeah there was a clear sort of move towards a darker more more interesting contrast i think between like the light and the shadow and the relationships between them than we saw in ocarina of time yeah yeah and and i think part of what seems to be your your argument or your if not that, then sort of the thing you're really drawn to about that game seems to be this um, this ambiguity about the about the hero. You say he's he becomes more uh, it's an outsider, a stranger, right, in this world, and yes. he's not he's not forced. And this was what I thought was so interesting. I hadn't thought about it this way. He's not forced. He's not destined, right, to save the world. He's not that kind of mm-hmm. hero. He's the kind of hero who sees people around him struggling in all these little small ways and you you have the choice to do something about that or not right but mostly yeah you're sort of you're seeking a a way to heal yourself right is that fair to say yes yeah and with that you especially at the beginning of the game um yeah but i mean even even the whole setting the whole context that the game is cast in is like you're a wanderer you come from the world that ocarina of time sort of was um you're back to being a kid you're back from hyrule and it starts with loss of all the crazy things like navi has left yes she's like well we saved the day it's time to go (laughs) and you go out looking for her into the lost woods um and that's like the game opens with those couple of very cryptic very ominous um just panels of text just saying that you've lost this friend and it plays the Navi sound effect in case you haven't picked up on it because they don't mention her explicitly. And you're just wandering through the woods and you get jumped by the skull kid and that's the inciting event. Um, He steals your ocarina. He sort of takes from you your attachment to your home. And then just to make it that much crazier, that much worse, he transforms you into a Deku scrub. So not only does he take like your past, but he takes your identity from you. And that's how the game begins with the mask, the happy mask salesman promising that you will have your identity restored and he can help you do that, but he needs something from you too. 
Namely, he needs the mask that was stolen from him. So right at the beginning, it's not, it's not this situation where, you know, you're just the kid who woke up from this bad dream and you're on this quest to save the world. Instead, this quest sort of just overtakes you. Um, It's personal. And at the same time, it's personal because you don't understand how it relates to you. Like you do get your identity stolen. And as you progress through Termina, all of these people interact with you as a non-entity, as a faceless being, as any one of the masks that you put on, but very rarely as Link himself. Yeah, yeah. There's there's something interesting going on in this game, which makes me think about um, later titles in the series. Um, there's uh, You mentioned, I think, the idea that the stone tower bears some analogy to the Tower of Babel. And that, yes. made, think, that made me think of the flood that happens in Wind Waker, right, which is the next big, if I'm getting my uh, order correct, that's the next big Zelda um title yep right so we got a flood motif going on there and again it's like everything is is lost and you have to sort of recover uh, what was lost um and then in uh to skip over one or two in the more recent one um the breath of the wild uh Mm -hmm. you sort of have this like huge world to just sort of explore and and the the quest in a way sort of falls in the background of all this cool stuff you can do in the world right right yeah it's, it's kind of like it's kind of like there's this there's sort of two kinds of video game if i can just say it like really mm-hmm. you know simplistically either there's a quest and you save the world kind of story narrative right or mm-hmm. or there's not really a concern with narrative you're just like doing cool stuff and playing and exploring and getting stuff right you know? and it's sort of like the there's an open question in our in our world right like what kind of life are you trying to live are you living a life which has a goal you have some kind of mm-hmm. thing you're striving towards, uh, whatever that looks like in whatever way you want to, you know, couch that. Or is it sort of like you just freely go around and do stuff and get stuff. And, and that's all it's for. It's all it's really about. And so in, in this, in this game, you sort of see a, a way of, um, of trying to bring that tension to the forefront, I guess. That's, that's what struck me as mm-hmm. I was thinking about this. Um, what, what do you make of that? With regard to just like the the setting of Majora's Mask or in Zelda more generally, yeah, is is I guess is that um, does that sort of seem true to you? And and is I guess is um, is there a correct answer about like the that dichotomy, like which which sort of a game is the the greater work of art, which th- sort of a life is the better is the good life, you know, sort of thing. I think. Um, as far as games as a work of art, like I've seen really great stuff done in both formats. Um, in fact, one of the, one of the YouTubers that I follow, um, Errant Signal, you should check him out when you get the chance. He spends a lot of time talking about the immersive sim um, in the form of like Deus Ex or the original Thief games or games as, as recent as uh, Gone Home or uh, the 2017 Prey. Um, all of these were games that stressed freedom over sort of a strict plot, a strict commanded destination, um, much as Breath of the Wild is very much in that immersive sim line. Um, and I think 
I think it really very much depends on what you do with that, what you do with the decision to make your mechanics sort of surround the idea of we're going to tell this story as opposed to we're going to provide this world for the player to explore. Because, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I've played through Breath of the Wild now, and while I absolutely love the world that it provides, the plot is kind of lackluster. Um, mm -hmm. Ganon hangs out in the background. He's kind of not even a threat until you actually decide to confront him on your own terms, which means that you could have like gotten all of the weapons and all of the hard pieces and everything. And you go in like tank style, just I am going to wreck you when there is no threat that you pose to me. That's sort of, yeah, it takes the catastrophe out of the thing, right? Like the, the turn of the story is sort of yeah. buried in there. You, you don't ever really doubt. You don't ever really feel like there's something at stake. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, in Ocarina of Time, Ganon, Ganondorf's a real threat. I mean, you, you peer at him with Zelda through the window and she's like, this guy is going to mess up the kingdom. And you confront him as he's riding off with her and he just like chucks you aside like you're a joke. And you want to get back at him. There's, there's a good reason for you to want to fight Ganondorf at the end of Ocarina of Time. And there are so many good reasons to fight Majora at the end of Majora's Mask. Um, and in, even in Wind Waker, like, if anything, it's even more intimate there. Ganondorf kicks you out of his fortress like twice in Wind Waker. And you always have to go back. You always have to fight your way through you always want to just like stick it to him and his stupid bird. And you just want to, <laughs> you want to make him pay. Um, yeah. But in breath of the wild, he's just off in his castle doing his own thing. And you just, isn't the, isn't the, the plot ex explanation for that something like Zelda is, is occupying his attention, right? She's like keeping him locked in, in battle that whole time yes. or something. Is that, am I getting that right? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, but, yeah, it's still it's explained, <laughs> but it still becomes impersonal. Um, Ganon is Ganon is sort of a more ambiguous, ethereal threat than he is something clear and present. Um, he's not a person in that sense, and I think the Zelda games have sort of been straying that way in the more recent incarnations. Um, Skyward Sword, it's very much the same thing. Like it's not even Ganon you're fighting. It's this sort of archetypal evil figure who ultimately gives birth yeah. to Ganon at the end of the game. Spoilers, mind you, but. Um, no, it's fine. We've, we've already told everyone who's listening that they have to assume that they're just going to get everything spoiled that they want to hear about. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> it's also, um, it seems like in terms of the, um, the move towards that, that ambiguity i guess if we're going to call it, you go with that idea right and say like so there is a quest here but it's not as um not as compelling in some ways mm -hmm. right it's a little bit more it's really more sort of in the background and it's more about exploring this world and playing in it and finding things and meeting people maybe i, th I think that that seems like the way that most video games seem to be headed i guess i, I don't play a lot of new games but um, even just like I don't know if you've read or or looked into much of uh, Ready Player One, this kind yes. of phenomenon surrounding it. So I just recently, you know, sat down and kind of skimmed that book. I didn't read it super carefully, but it was really interesting. But not because of the story or the characters, but because of the world. You know, this yeah. concept of a totally immersive world, which comes to supplant, you know, actual Reality. real world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, whatever that is, right? So. <laughs> 
So there's there's a lot going on there, and I think it kind of goes back to, you know, uh, sitting in that class with you in Boston and um, Augustine's Confessions, the first paragraph or two, right? He's he's not content in the world as it is. He yearns for something beyond the world, right? Yes. That that seems like that seems like what's going on in these games that they offer this this possibility of of a of a more expansive, a more uh, complete experience than one could have ever in life. And, and I don't know if that's sort of, um, well, I don't know how that would tie in with uh, the loss of faith, um, if it's a sort of like substitute for it or something, because people just, people get really lost in these games, you know, um, and, and, it seems like the natural extension of that is that eventually there will be something like the oasis, you know, the, the world that's sort of effectively infinite. Um, right. Fine. Um, and I guess, especially given, I mean, like to sort of take it to the next step, granted there are all of these games emphasizing the freedom, giving you worlds to play with instead of sort of quests to go on. But I mean, think of Minecraft, think of a world that it's not only a world and just the mechanics and no story to follow so to speak but the ability to create your own worlds out of it for you to be able to impose meaning or not impose meaning as you see fit um the line between between narrative and creative canvas is sort of being left un, undrawn. Yeah. Um, so then, then we get to sort of make our own stories within these worlds. Is that kind of what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And or even turn them into our own. That the freedom becomes so great that you know you participate in the creation. You are as much artist as Notch or as uh, Shigeru Miyamoto. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now that's really cool because the other game. No. So just to like. Set set aside that that deeper discussion for a second. You've played um, mm-hmm. Undertale, right? Yes. Yeah, that's the other game I really wanted to talk to you about, just briefly. And like, so it's a it's sort of essentially a fan made game, right? It's not a professional. Am, am I right about that? The line again is a little vague there, okay. and the indie gaming scene is very rich and robust at the moment, yeah. and Toby Fox is certainly a part of it. Yeah. But it is very clearly like a tribute game to games like earthbound and other jrpgs of the time at the same time as it is sort of its own entity being created with its own purpose and its own message to be taught yeah i I just find that that kind of work of art so fascinating and i love the message of the game because i think it gets it exactly right it's like you fall into this other world this fairy world in a way right Mm. but the the quest the purpose of the game seems to be to convey that you are not of that world, right? You, you mm-hmm. have a bigger world and the bigger world is the real world. It's not the fairy world. <laughs> and, and so you've got to yeah. return, you've got to return after, after you prove yourself, after you do everything that you can do in, in that space, right? Then you return to the real world. And, and I always mm-hmm. sort of, I always come back to that with, with earthbound. I think that's what I love most about earthbound is that it's, it does have an end, you know, it's not, it's not without um, some kind of story. And, and the end point of the story seems to be to kind of jettison you back into reality and say like, well, so now you've learned something from this now, now go and, and 
do something in the world, you know, um, be a better. Right. Now you're more prepared. Um, and that's, that's sort of enough. Like, it's not that it's not, it's pretty simple. Really. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's what all, all great stories are basically about. If you want to look for like themes and things, that's kind of what it comes down to. And then it's like, it's a matter for the philosophers to discuss, like, okay, so what is the good then? What is truth? What is, mm-hmm. all right, that, that's fine. But, um, but then there's like a really pragmatic element to it where it's like, okay, so just like do your best, like try to make the world a better place. And, and yeah, I just, I think that that um, is really brought home in the way that Undertale has the, the whole like choices affect the world sort of thing and, and doing mm-hmm. good things versus doing evil things has a big impact and you can feel that as a player. I just think it's brilliant. I just think it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I've also seen some really rich things done because uh, for a while there in the early 2000s, right around Bioshock and Mass Effect and some of those games, there was this sort of emphasis on moral choice systems. Like you were either the paragon or the renegade, the good guy or the bad guy. And it was very binary. Um, and there's been a very determined move away from that in future installments, not so much in you know other Mass Effect games. In Bioshock, there was. Um, there was sort of this emphasis that whatever, in, at least in Bioshock Infinite, there was this emphasis that whatever you picked, it kind of didn't matter in the long run, which was more nihilistic. Yeah. But there was also a number of games that sort of got away from this is a good thing to do versus a bad thing to do. And instead emphasizing sort of how your actions affect certain people and your relationships. Mm. So for example, Fallout New Vegas implemented this fairly brilliant system which um, fallout 3 had done good or bad you were one or the other but in new vegas it was all dependent on your relationship with different factions in the game so maybe you would complete a quest for the brotherhood of steel and tick off all of the people in new vegas who were expecting you to do it a different way and by the end of the game there were something like five or six different outcomes depending on the choices that you had made had you turned New Vegas into an anarchist's paradise or had you turned it into like a um, bureaucratic nightmare via the old United States government? Or was it like a season, a, uh, a Roman empire, like oligarchy led by Caesar? I mean, there were a lot of different ways that it could pan out. Hmm. Um, like it goes, even now I'm playing uh, Life is Strange the the adventure game slash i don't even know what quite to call it um from square enix and and don't nod development and it's doing the same thing it's emphasizing your relationships to specific other people do you save your friend in this situation or do you help your other friend or do you report this guy and if you do who's going to get mad at you and who's going to retaliate against you and who's going to actually think that you did the right thing um it's interesting so that the ethics the ethics becomes much more multifaceted and and complex and yes and it's not just purely the game gives you a cookie because you did the good thing in this one as opposed to you know punishing you for doing the bad thing it sounds like it sounds like it does start to shade into politics as well right and i i know that that seems to be right going back to the classic uh, example right so where the ethics leaves off aristotle then is going to pick up with politics next seems to be the promise yep and um and of course his politics is a totally different book uh what we have of it is seems much less um 
masterful and uh, finished, I guess. Uh, yep. But it's, I guess. So what is what is the um, what is the kind of political valence or or aspect of all this? Then, if if video games can teach people about you know becoming sort of better individuals, can they also really do something to improve the um, the political discourse and people's sort of citizenly sense of how they're how they're to act in the world um is because i don't play any really you know um online games where there's really interaction with other real humans <laughs> so i've never yeah. I, I didn't really I, I haven't really experienced what that's like i get the sense that it's sort of um sort of vile what a lot of people sort of do to one another in those worlds uh and the kind of conversations they have seem really really petty and, and mean uh so i'm uh, yes. Is there, a, is there an outlook where that's going to get better at any point? or like? There's been a great deal of effort sort of um, spent on trying to figure out how to make online environments into safe, better places. And I think a lot of those efforts have paid off. Um, there are a lot of techniques for preventing toxicity of the kind that you know we used to associate with Xbox Live Arcade and people who would just spew racist epithets at each other no matter what the circumstances. Um, like There are a lot of forces out there that are sort of clamping down on that. Um, and I think in general... Um, like I, I've in my study of the ethics of discourse, I'm keen to talk about the way the internet forums work and the way that online communities like world of Warcraft work, because the way, I mean, even Facebook, there's a certain etiquette and a morality that's been built up around it in part enforced by Facebook, but also just in the way that people interact with each other. If you go around spewing bile at people, you're going to get unfriended. People are going to put social pressure on you to fall into line. Right. Um, that because you're not anonymous there. And uh, yes. you know, in the same way that you are in a lot of these games, you sort of merge with a persona rather than being an, an actual person. And I think, I think that's the connection between ethics and politics, right? As long as people care about you as an individual, then then you're going to try to be a better person in, in the group as well, I think. Um, yeah. If you have a reputation to defend, then you have, you know, good reason to be a good citizen. Whether that reputation is, I've, you know, gotten through 100 games on Counter-Strike, and as a result, I have all the best equipment and all these fancy doodads and statuses <laughs> and avatars. Or if it's just as simple as, I don't want to have to create a new account every time I log into Call of Duty. Yeah. Now, now, so that would be kind of, I guess, the last point I wanted to touch on then was like, so what is it, what is it that really has the power to change people's minds, I guess, about, um, it could be about a political topic, right, which people seem very entrenched in these days to the point where it's yes. like really bound up with their identity, uh, their whole story of themselves or, or whatever, um, because it seems like the only thing that's reliable that's going to change people's mind right is a kind of conversion experience i was trying to think about mm. this and that's what i came up with was it's a conversion that's that's the turning that's the change in somebody and and it's really i mean it's so powerful that it seems like we have kind of abdicated from that we've tried to back away from that and and retreated from religious you know um so forms of of power uh of 
of community um, because they were sort of misused, you know, uh, they were, mm-hmm. they were perverted, they were corrupted, like, like everything. Um, but it seems like, it seems like that is really at the end of the day, the way that you change someone's mind is, is, is that kind of thing. Um, it's not simply through persuasion and, and facts, right? That seems like pretty mm-hmm. clear. Um, so, so what does one do with that? Like, uh, is there still, is there still some kind of tenable outcome here for, do you have, do you have an idea of what your conclusion might be about this whole ethics of discourse? Like what, what is, do we have to kind of go back to something in a kind of religious framework um, or is, is there some other way to really um, affect people and, and try to become better people? Um. It's obviously a complex question and to give you, you know, the short and un, or the short and unhappy answer is I'm not at answers yet. Um, to paraphrase Ian Danskin talking about the exact same thing um, when he does his videos on the alt-right playbook, um, we're not at solutions. Uh, so far as I can tell, yes, this is about worldviews. This is more than just facts and figures. This is more than just marshalling the correct rational argument and thus persuading as conducted and now you are a better person. Um, Rather, it's about changing your entire outlook. And I say that from the first person, knowing that, you know, that's something that I am engaged in doing. But as, you know, the Quran and the Bible and basically every religious text ever has said, you can't coerce people into conversion has to be free um, yeah it has to be it has to come from the person themselves i mean even even when jesus shows up to saul on the road to damascus his question isn't you know bam snap his fingers and now saul saul is converted it's why do you kick against the pricks why are you fighting so hard against what is the truth um and it's paul who must himself come to the conclusion that oh well that was really dumb of me um so in admittedly that's in a radical situation where a miraculous presence has taken place which is something that we don't really see or hear about every day if you Um, take it as a metaphor though i don't think it's that outlandish right there there's this kind of recognition there's this revelation of something that you could call divine in a person or you know in a moment and it's sort of like this change comes about for you but it, it does seem like it has to be a choice. It's something you choose or else it, it, it doesn't have that impact, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And I think what's really concerning about this whole situation is that most of the time we don't force people to choose. Hmm. That's sort of the trick between pluralism and relativism. That's, that's why our pluralism doesn't work because we don't ask people to commit to their choices. We just say, yes, by all means, hold as many conflicting ideas as you want. Yes, by all means, do not examine yourselves and treat ideas like they're tools or playthings, not like they're the sort of thing that can command your entire reality. Um, and as long as we treat them with that sort of kid gloves attitude, there's no reason why anyone would bother to convert. They, nobody would take conversion seriously. It's too much it would just work. be, you know. Yeah. It's too much work and it's too temporary. There are no promises. Who's to say you're not just going to convert again in you know three days or five or a couple of months? Yes, yes. Uh, so that's, that's where I think 
but kids don't act that way when they play games. You know, kids get really like taken with the game. They they want the game to be played right. You know. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's sort of maybe what what you're talking about when you have to sort of become as a child. You know, sort of thing. Because um, yeah, because it's a play thing, but it's it's a it's a, it's an interesting kind of play if it is. Uh, yeah. It's deadly serious, as Chesterton said of play. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Ben, I think I feel like that's a good place to stop for, for this, this session here. But I'd love to talk to you again one of these weeks and, uh, and see how your ideas are progressing and just kind of check in. Um, does that well, sound good? By all means, yeah, absolutely. Just let me know what works for you, and I will be happy to appear on Bookworm Games again. Yes, great, great. I really appreciate it. And uh, until next time, take care. You too, Wes.